This week we're, we're continuing on in our series on the parables in Luke 8, 4 through 15. And uh, By way of starting, I know some of y'all know this about me, but my favorite movie is Breakfast at Tiffany's. And I'll tell you why. It's because at, uh, the basic premise of the movie Breakfast at Tiffany's is that uh, there's this woman named Holly Golightly, and she makes a vow kind of within herself that she is never going to be owned or uh, controlled by anybody, right? Uh, so she, the way that she goes about this, how she uh, ends up not being controlled is that she never loves anybody or anything. So she has a cat that she like feeds and takes care of and all this stuff. But then when she's asked about it, she goes, oh, it doesn't have a name. Its name is just cat. I don't know who it is. It doesn't own me. I don't own it, right? So that way if the cat runs off, she doesn't, have, she doesn't have to feel bad, right? It was never her cat to begin with. It has nothing, no bearing on her as a person. Who cares? A uh, guy comes into the movie and uh, classic love story. He loves her and yada, yada, yada. His name is Paul Varjak and she calls him Fred because again, she doesn't want to know his name and doesn't want to acknowledge that she likes him too. And the climax of the movie is essentially this. Paul's there, you know, it's the rain's coming down. They're in a cab. It's, you know, it's New York City, all this stuff. But at the end of the movie, he looks at her and he says this, your whole life, you have been worried that someone or something was going to stick you in a cage. But I've got news for you, baby. You're already in a cage. You built it yourself. And you can't outrun it. It doesn't matter how far to the east or the west you run, you're still going to be in that cage because you have put yourself in there. Right? What he means by that is uh, she is so worried about if she loves Paul and then he breaks up with her, he, he treats her poorly or whatever, what will that say about her? Right? What will that, what, what, how will she feel knowing that she's been rejected by him? In order to avoid being owned or controlled by anyone or anything, she's actually made herself less human. Uh, in order to make herself not be caged by anybody, she's actually caged herself. And so really the point that he's making, the point that whole movie is making, the point I want to make here as we begin, is that you have got to love something. That if you're going to be a real human being, you've got to be open to loving something, to care about something, to let your heart be set after something. And that's just part of being human. You can't avoid it. And the only way to avoid it is actually to lock yourself up and become less human, to not even live. In our parable tonight, Jesus is going to examine our loves. He's going to pick up a few of them. And, and he's going to ask what has captured our hearts and, and uh, what it does to his place in our lives when other things have come first and other things are the things that we have really set our affections on. What happens when we love a Paul Varjak and he actually does run away from us? <laughs> right? That's our big question, actually, for the evening. It's really, what is the condition of your heart, right? What is the condition of your heart? What are, what are you chasing after? Uh, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll look at the text. Uh, Lord, um, we just pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so remember, our big question for the evening is, What's the condition of your heart? Now, before we look at any individual verses here, let's get on the same page about like the framework of this parable that Jesus is telling, right? This, this simple story that, that Jesus tells. He tells it about a sower who scatters seed, right? Indiscriminately, it seems, upon four different soils, kinds of soil. Each soil receiving the seed differently based on the state of that soil. 
The seed, Jesus says in verse 11, he, as he unpacks what everything means, he says it's the word of God, you know, what we would call the Bible. I know I'm uh, on a college campus, right? right? So um, I'm aware of a few things when I say that that's what Jesus means, that there's like, if you've taken any religion classes here, you might've had this encounter of like the search for the historical Jesus, like the real one in the Bible, not the one that's like all made up by the biblical authors. Or maybe um, you know that like what's really the Bible is like what some of what Paul says and some of what James says, but not all of what they say. If you've had one of those classes, I'm aware that that's like swimming around in the milieu you might be in. Uh, more than that, I know that like the New Testament had not been written yet, right? Jesus is teaching this and then it's recorded later. So he's, he, you know, you might say that uh, there's no way to describe what Jesus is saying by the word of God as being the New Testament. I had a whole three pages written about how like this is like the word of God and what it is. And we could have talked about that for 20 minutes, but it would take us away from the whole point of the parable. So instead, I'm just going to ask that since the New Testament claims that it contains Jesus' teaching, and in that teaching, uh, he, Jesus, believed himself to be one with the God of the Old Testament. And since he affirmed that Old Testament so often that we just take it for granted that Jesus is talking about the whole Bible. You and I can have a whole one-on-one about whether or not Jesus is talking about the whole Bible for the rest of the sermon. I'm just going to assume that that's true, okay? And we can infer from verse 12, right? Okay, so the, the word of God is the seed, right? And we can infer from verse 12 that the soil is the human heart. That's where the word is, is snatched from, It said. Now, uh, we need to talk about what the heart means. Uh, when I say heart, you might literally think of the organ in the human body. You would not be wrong about that, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. Uh, if you're talking figuratively, I will say, though, even in our culture, we usually use like our mind as a reference to our thoughts, right? Is it like our brain is a stand-in for our thoughts, our heart is our emotions, and like maybe our gut is our like motivation, like what animates us. But this isn't really what Jesus means when he uses the word heart. It's not just your affections. Uh, I know I used the, um, the thing earlier with Paul Barjack. That's a very like set love story, but the heart is actually deeper than even that. It is uh, where the place where your thoughts, like what you think, where your emotions and where your will all connect. That's what the Bible means when it says heart. It is the center of who we are. That's what ancient people thought the heart was, is the reason we do and think and feel all that we do and think and feel. So to drop the metaphor, right? Here's what Jesus is really teaching to give us a framework here. Jesus is really teaching this great crowd and by extension us tonight, that the condition of their hearts will determine whether they can fully receive God's word. That it's really a matter of what is your heart set on? What has, what has it? What condition is it in? That is what determines what soil it is will determine whether or not you can receive the word. And since God's word is predominantly a story that tells us who God is and who we are, this means that Jesus is claiming that how you engage with that story of of God's love for you and his lordship over your life, that will determine who you think you are, who God is, who your neighbor is, all all the things in your life will be determined about whether or not you can receive God's word. Do you live like that story is true? That reveals the state of our hearts. Now, now that we're on the same page about uh, definitions, let's, let's look at verse five. 
Let's, let's actually get into the parable. Look with me at verse 5. Let's print it on your handout. Jesus starts with an image of, of some seed that is scattered along a path. Now, uh, you'd think that this might help the seed get like pushed into the soil, if it's especially uh, with it being trampled upon. But the foot traffic either crushes the seed so that it can't germinate or prohibits, uh, prohibits it from growing up out of the soil. Right, Every time it tries to grow, it just gets crushed back down. And for whatever is left, Jesus says, birds come and eat it. None of the seed is able to penetrate into the soil and grow, and it doesn't really even stand a chance. Later in verse 12, uh, Jesus explains the meaning of this scene. Look with me there. Look at me at verse 12. Uh, He says, The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. A couple notes to make about the spiritual significance about this story can be made here. First, this type of person, right, Jesus says, is someone who hears God's word, right? They have heard the message of God's sacrificial love for his creation and his sovereign lordship over it. They've heard the Bible and all that it says about the goodness of God, and they immediately reject it. Right, it doesn't even stand a chance. This person wants nothing to do with God or his governance over his or her life. They reject God openly. And this happens, we are told, because the devil causes them not to believe and be saved. Now, I understand that uh, us as you know, enlightened Western Americans, uh, 21st century, it's hard to believe that there is like a devil out there, right? That can take God's word from men's heart men's hearts, right? Men's and women's hearts. We, we think all the devil and the demon and supernatural stuff of the Bible must be fabricated uh, because it can't be replicated or observed in the scientific method. But the Bible claims that Satan is very much real and at work in our world today. So before we write that off, we should really let the Bible inform us about what that even might look like. Uh, we didn't read this part tonight, but just before Genesis 3, the passage that we did read earlier, Uh, It tells us that God once told our ancestors, Adam and Eve, not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil or they would die. Just one rule that they had to obey. Uh, They have every, in in fact, it's actually just one rule that they have to not violate, right? They don't have to earn anything. They don't have to do anything. They have to not do something in order to just stay in God's favor. They have every reason to follow God's command, to trust him and his word. He's taking perfect care of them. They are never hungry. They are never sick. They're never tired. This is they, they're completely safe in God's love. They want for nothing. Their work is significant as they co-create with God himself on the earth and are given dominion over all creation. But then out of nowhere in chapter three, as we read, it begins with this. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And here the, the line of reasoning that Satan offers Eve, right? How is it that this, this seed, how does Satan take uh, the seeds away? Like, how does that work? Before we assume that there is no Satan, listen to how he works. He says this to, to Eve. God knows that when you eat of it, this, this fruit, if you disobey God, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan promises that if they choose their own path, they can be like God. No more trusting God. Yeah, you're fine now. Sure. But if you had all the control, if you were in control of your own life, then you wouldn't have to depend on him at all. And what if he stops taking care of you? They have no reason to believe that he won't, right? But, they, but Satan starts to sow a little bit of doubt. 
And here's, here's the weird thing. They already have all the stuff under God's rule. There's no reason to fall for this line of reasoning that Satan offers, but it's too late, right? They take Satan's bait. They eat the fruit. God's word of warning that they should have treasured in their heart is snuffed out by Satan, not by him just like, you know, guns blazing, you know, some sort of like exorcism. He takes over their body and makes them eat the fruit. He does it just by saying, you know, your life could be more in your own control if you just did what you wanted to do and didn't listen to God. You ever hear that voice, (laughs) right? Every time you've ever disobeyed, have you ever thought like, man, I know that I shouldn't lie. I shouldn't cheat on this test. I shouldn't, I know that the the professor said no notes on this test, but it's an online test. And like, he's not going to know any different. And so who cares, right? You ever think that way, right? This is our first possible answer to our question tonight. What is the condition of your heart? Your heart can be closed. It can be closed. A heart that is taken in by Satan continues to believe the same lie that Adam and Eve believed. Its mantra is, no one can have authority over me except for me. I can make myself significant. I can make myself safe. I can make myself enough. This is the mantra of the spiritually closed person. They can be jaded or skeptical to God. They they ask, if God was really for me, then why did all these bad things happen in my life? He can't be trusted. The spiritually closed person accuses God of not having their best interests and continues in Adam and Eve's trajectory. Probably the biggest example of this heart today is is really just the championing of individual truth, right? If you really think about it, no one can tell you what is right or wrong to do with your body in any way. It's college, you say. Everyone drinks, everyone hooks up, everyone lives their lives, uh, you know, lives with their significant other. You move in. Uh, This is the time to experiment with your sexuality. Everyone takes a little Adderall, smokes a little weed, gets the answers from their friend for the online assignment. Everyone does it. You know, everyone does it. Not a big deal. You shrug off the nagging sense that maybe, you know, maybe everyone does it, but that doesn't make it right. We shrug these kinds of things off and you tell yourself we're in the age of consent. We've, those things that I feel, the guilt that I feel is actually our culture pushing on me negative things that I actually don't need to believe, right? I am enlightened by moving past those things. As long as I don't hurt anyone, I'm doing a good thing. Except... Uh, that God doesn't understand that, like, we think that's what real love is, that God, God understands. He's enlightened like us, but he doesn't understand. When you say this, you reject God's authority and you live by your own. You produce no fruit, Jesus says, because your trust is ultimately in what you can do and what you see is right in your own eyes. It does not lead to good ends. You don't see that shirking God's authority actually enslaves you to a life of chasing your justification in the hot, dating the hottest guy or the hottest girl, being invited to the best sorority or fraternity formal, being, uh, you know, getting the right grades, the right internships, the right accolades. That'll lead me into comfort, right? You are now enslaved to those things. It's your only option. It's a tough pill to swallow, but if you don't, God is content actually, and this is his judgment, to allow you to get exactly what you want. Right? If you want those things, if you want to be your own authority, God is actually content to let you do that. And that is actually the worst thing that could happen. Because then you have to spend the rest of your life making sure that all the things that you want, you get. And that is a tenuous position to be in. He has given you the seed of his word. It's your prerogative to reject it. Nothing, in fact, would make Satan happier. But what about, you know, those of us, you're like, wow, what, what a bummer. 
right? But at least I'm not like those people, right? Whatever. What about those of us who at least to some degree, at some point, right, don't immediately outright, you know, you're probably here tonight, you're like, well, I, I, I don't think God's, I, I'm listening to you right now, Nick. My friend dragged me here and I'm at least willing to hear you out, right? Uh, I, you know, maybe I'll receive God's lordship and love. Well, look at me at verse six. Jesus continues his parable. Look with me at verse six. Jesus is describing a common phenomenon in Palestine. Uh, you know, these are a lot of farming people. Much of the area is actually situated atop a layer of limestone, not unlike Kentucky. Uh, there's a thin layer of topsoil uh, where Jesus is speaking. And underneath that layer is a thick layer of rock, which made it very difficult to farm and difficult to know where the proper place to sow the grain would be. You'd scatter it and then you wouldn't know until later that it's actually over top of a limestone bed, and it's hard to get its roots to grow. So uh, the seed would seem to take, but as it grew and needed more water, right, it wouldn't have enough moisture. The roots would have nowhere from which to draw the moisture, and the plant would eventually die. Jesus explains the meaning of that, that image, that commonplace image in verse 13. Look with me there. Just as seeds that fell upon the shallow topsoil wither away from lack of water, so also people who initially receive God's word without a root, without like deep roots that are nourished and moist, they fall away during a time of testing. To be rooted then is to endure in the times of testing without compromising God's love or lordship. Now, the question then becomes, right, what is this time of testing? Well, this same parable also appears in Mark 4, and there, Mark elaborates what the times of testing are. He says that they're when tribulation or persecution arises. Now, the reality is that you're probably not going to like directly experience persecution in some of the, like, the ways that you've maybe heard it, right? Like you might never get like sawn in half or like lined up and shot for your faith. Like that may never happen to you, right? Threaten, your family might not be threatened if you go to church. But I do know some of you, right, have lost friends, maybe, over your commitment to Jesus. And this may only continue as our culture drifts from, you know, biblical traditional values and attacks those who hold to them, right? To compromise on our biblical commitments for the sake of social acceptance. I mean, that's part of what Jesus is talking about here. This is our second impossible answer to our question tonight. What is the condition of your heart? Well, your heart can be concerned with the opinions of other people. At the end of the day, concerned more with the opinions of other people. Uh, to, to sum it up, right? Jesus said that your has said so far that your heart can be closed or concerned with others. Closed or concerned. My old seminary president, uh, guy that I was getting my master's with, he was the like president of the whole thing. He tells this story of a woman named Karen, and this was like ten years ago before Karen became like a synonymous with a terrible person. Uh, she's not a Karen in this story, uh, but it's her and her husband Randy. Uh, Randy was a seminary student. And Karen worked full-time to pay for his school and to put food on the table. Her job was with a major pharmaceutical company as a quality control inspector. And one day, there was a large order of syringes that a machine had, uh, had to produce, but a faulty procedure had to be followed, and the whole order was contaminated. Uh, they failed her inspection, and she reported the issue to her boss, but the cost of reproducing the order would have been huge, and companies, you know, they don't really like to lose money. And so she was ordered to sign off on the inspection anyways. Uh, she was the only one who could sign off. 
And the company president came to visit her and urged her to sign. If she didn't, her job was at stake, but more than just a job, how would her husband keep going to school? Right? They had two children. How would they eat? Uh, she had no choice, right? Had, uh, had no choice in the matter, right? But then she makes a decision that by her values, like uh, the, by, by the values of her company was the right one. Um, or sorry, she had a decision to make, right? Values of her company, right? What's going to create the biggest bottom line or refuse to sign because she was seeking to live by the values of God's kingdom, which, which is to love one's neighbor and to seek their good. They gave her a weekend to think it over. She refused and was fired. That's, that's Karen's story. Jesus is calling his people to this kind of radical living, right? Like, how far are you willing to go in following him? Would you lose your job like Karen, right? The respect of your peers. Would you lose your reputation as intelligent or like not backwards in one of your classes? Would you be willing to lose a friend, a moral high ground. Another way of asking this is, what makes you embarrassed about Jesus? Right? Like, what makes you embarrassed about, about the Bible? What makes you embarrassed about Jesus? What's that thing about the Bible that, that you just wish wasn't there and that you kind of bristle under? Right? Is it, you know, it's teaching about homosexuality or about marriage or divorce? So is it the gender roles? Is it abortion? Right? You know, you might be hearing like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, tell them about all that stuff. They need to be listening. Is it the fact that you're supposed to love the people who don't have the right views that you think you're supposed to have about those things? Right? If you're the one who's like in here like, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like those people. Well, the Bible also condemns that kind of attitude, right? What is it for you that you, that you think like God doesn't have it right? Right? There's no shortages of, shortage of passages that make us uneasy. And Jesus is saying, you may love his grace. You can be excited about the gospel. Who doesn't want this deal? God's going to take away all the wrong things I've ever done. That's awesome. But when, if when you are pressed to it, right, you have been in his lordship, you are like a seed that falls on that limestone and you die. If you find that the God that you believe in if, if the God you believe in affirms all the stuff that you already think and believe and, and want him to say, you, you don't worship God. You worship yourself, right? You are your own God. You aren't rooted to the water of life, says Jesus. But maybe you're here tonight and you proudly tell people you follow Jesus. You're trying to be humble. You're doing all the right things. Uh, you're, you're trying to follow the Bible. You're certainly not like those other two soils. Look at me at verse 7. Jesus gives us yet another option. Here Jesus describes another common occurrence in farming, right? Uh, he refers to a, like a thorn scenario. And thorns is just a generic term for weeds that are inedible, right? Like a, a thorn is something that you don't want to eat. <laughs> so as Jesus and his audience know, to prepare the soil for seed, right, you need to plow it. And in this, you know, third kind of soil that he talks about, uh, he's describing that kind of soil but of course, if there's weeds in the soil, like, you know, the fluffy part of a dandelion that have the seeds built into the plant, when you till the soil, actually what you're doing is planting more weeds, <laughs> right? If you have not already uprooted the weeds out of the soil first. And so for a while, in this third scenario, as Jesus describes it, all will seem well, right? The, 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 sometimes the, um, the crop will grow and, and it's not until the weeds come back. 
sometimes after your intended crop has already started growing, that you notice something is wrong. And those weeds will take the nutrients out of the soil for themselves and they'll shade the the crop that you're trying to grow. And Jesus interprets this scenario in verse 14. Look with me there. Jesus says, The weeds represent the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And these things, he claims, keeps the crop from reaching maturity. And it dies just as weeds will kill a wheat crop before it can be harvested. Right? Now, what, the, what are the, the cares and, and pleasures of the life? Right? Uh, what are they that, that will choke out a wheat crop before it can be harvested? Before it, things that can choke out God's word and make it not effective in our lives. Well, let's let Jesus define it from an episode in his own life. Later in Luke 18, Jesus is going to meet a man who comes up to him and says, uh, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what do you think? Uh, and he goes, uh, you know, follow all the commandments, do everything God says. And Jesus goes, sure, man. Yeah, just do all that stuff. And he goes, well, you know what? I'm in good shape. All this I have done since my youth. I am like, I'm a great guy. And then Jesus looks at him and he says this. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when this religious man heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Right? At the end of the day, like stuff kept this guy safe. Stuff gave him meaning. Stuff, like riches, they made him significant. They made him somebody. God came second. And Jesus there pushes back on him and says, no, I have to be first. I have to be the thing that you want that keeps you safe, that keeps you uh, whole. This is our third possible answer to our question tonight. What is the condition of your heart? Well, you can crave the world. You can crave the world. Right, to sum it up, you can, you can be closed. Your heart can be uh, concerned with others or it can crave the world. Now, I will say this about this third soil. In my opinion, it's the most insidious of all the soils. Right? The first two are obvious, right? You're like saying, I don't love Jesus. Like either right away or eventually you're closed and indifferent or at some point deny him. And the scariest thing about this third kind of heart is that it can grow up right alongside uh, another heart that is set after God and look the exact same, at least for a while. Even seems to bear fruit, seems to be a blessing to others and receptive to the word of God, but then the world slowly overtakes it. This is the warning of the third kind of heart that Jesus wants to address. You can start off well, even pay lip service to Jesus as your king until suddenly you're just not as receptive to his word anymore. You want what you want, right? At some point, that other stuff overtakes it. Good things that God has given you start to become more important to where you can't lose them even over what God would have you do, right? This is uh, is what happens when, you know, financially speaking, right, uh, oh, I'll give more to things. Like I'll, I'll be more generous once I have more money. But guess what? Then you always think it's never enough, <laughs> right? Uh, oh, um, you know, socially speaking, oh, I, I've got to network, have fun, make the right connections. That's why I can't study the Bible. That's why I can't come to, you know, sorry, I'm going to tread lightly here. You might have good reasons, but I, like, I can't come to RES Fall Conference because I got more, thing, more important things to happen. Like, I, I can't do this. Like, I can't, I can't go to church on Sunday. I have to stay up and, and, and uh, do this project, right, uh, academically. Uh, oh, I'm just trying to be a good student. Uh, but then you don't have time for friends, 
right? Uh, It's these things that slowly, they're good, but they creep up and they become primary real fast. These things are imperceptible at first, but Jesus is saying they can't coexist with him at the center of your heart. He alone gets the focus. All right, those three don't work, right? He's saying all those other states of heart, they're not going to work. They, they can't coexist with him. What state does Jesus think our hearts should be in? All right, let's land the plane. Look at me at verse eight. Here Jesus concludes his parable describing the good soil. For every kernel planted, a hundred kernels of grain are harvested. In verse 15, he impacts what that looks like, uh, you know, in, in real life, right? Look with me there. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. This, this last uh, soil that Jesus describes is one that receives God's word and, as he says, not only hears it, but holds fast to it. Right, this kind of person clings to the promises of God in the Bible and stakes their whole life upon it. Right, they are described as honest, which is fitting because unlike the other hearts Jesus has described, their life is singular in its direction. Right, their heart is set on one thing. It's not going to change depending on like what's the most advantageous in a given moment. Right, they're not duplicitous with multiple masters like the others. This heart is set on one thing. It's pure. And it wants one thing, and it wants God and his goodness. And when you see how good God is, he has come to us in Jesus Christ and died on the cross for our sins so that we don't have to be those other soils that end in disaster and pain. You will bear fruit like a strong and healthy plant that will benefit everyone around you. And that's our fourth and possible answer to our question tonight. What is the condition of your heart? It can be captured by grace, right? It can be closed. It can be concerned with others. It can be craving the world or it can be captured by grace. Now, you might be here and you go, uh, Nick, here we go. We ran through the other three. Honestly, I might even have more in common with the other three, but I, I'd rather be the fourth. How do, I, how do I get to be the fourth? I Just let me know how I get to be the fourth. Let's pay attention to the last part of verse 15. Last part of ver- verse 15. Jesus is careful to say that this last soil bears fruit, yes, but it bears fruit with patience with patience. Here's the kicker. Jesus is describing this common farming, farming scenario in the, in, in the ancient Near East. Seed is scattered everywhere. Uh, now, the question you might ask, like, if you really think about this parable, you're like, why don't you just pay more closer, like, if you're the sower, why don't you just pay closer attention and just scatter it in the right places, right? It's because uh, it takes more time to scatter it in the right places. The way the ancient uh, people would do it is you just Scatter it everywhere, and, it, and the good stuff will grow eventually. The right stuff will come along eventually. You don't have to be concerned about, uh, is, this, is it this soil or this soil? Uh, a good farmer would, would actually watch all these stages happen. The, the shallow soil grows up real fast, and it dies, right? And then another one would not grow at all. It never grew over there. Nothing ever happens. And then another soil would uh, grow up, and then it would, and you'd see the, the stuff grow up alongside the the weeds would grow up along it. And then there would be some that would grow up and you would know this is going to be a good crop, right? And that's going to happen eventually. You don't have to worry about where it goes. Eventually it's going to land on some good soil. And, it, and all it takes is patience if you're the farmer, right? And here's the good news. When God scatters his word, right? When he speaks into existence, he has all the time in the world for you, <laughs> right? Jesus wasn't on the cross going, 
wondering if you would eventually shape up. He knows your life from beginning to end and he's already died for it. And so with patience, he can wait for you to bear fruit. On those times, Marshall talked about it last week. It's like a, it's like a mustard seed, right? Like it grows, it's imperceptible for a while, but then it grows into a huge mustard seed. Jesus is saying the same thing here in this parable, albeit a little more subtle, right? That eventually the farmer will find the good soil and that your heart, right? If you're patient and you hold fast to God's word, it will produce the fruit that is desired. Second thing that I'd say uh, that, you know, while it might be stalled, you might lose heart. Uh, personally, you can take heart because God isn't going to grow impatient with you. Second thing I'll say is this. You don't have to be impatient with your friends, right? All of you probably in this room have some friends that you're thinking about and you're like, man, that person's probably soil number one. You might have thought that person might be soil number two. That's soil number three. I'm, I'm worried about them. Here's the good news. You don't know what, right? The sower of the word, God is ultimately the sower, right? As the person who spoke the word in the first place. But also as you tell your friends about Jesus, right? You, are, you then become this sower, sowing the word. And that means that you don't know what kind of soil things are falling on, right? It all looks the same to you. But that means that you can also be patient, that God produces it in its own time. We can't, we can't grow weary of doing good because God is patient with us, right? And we can bear that patience out to each other. We should never think like, man, that person's too far gone. This parable says, you don't know that, right? That, that God is patient with his people and he is scattering it. He's giving them the word. That's what your job is, is to faithfully give it to your friends, to pass along the grace you've been given. Let's pray.